Hello and welcome to The Positive Cynic. I'm Becky. By nature, I'm a glass half empty kind of person, but I'm trying to become more positive. Talking to people about things they love and try and get on board with them myself. But can I do that with Eurovision? The Marmite of song contests. At time of recording, it's less than two weeks to go until the 2021 Eurovision Song Contest. If I'm speaking to you in the future, how is it out there? Were you pleased with the winner? Whether you're a fan, a fiend or just indifferent, Eurovision has a global audience. I'm talking to Rob Lilly, journalist and Eurovision mega fan. It was just kind of a a cornucopia of everything, really. And Susan Harrison, actress, musician, improviser and comedy performer. Britain does like to be a bit sniffy about things, doesn't it? And look down on things and it should be celebrated, like genuinely. And I was thinking the other day about like the actual artists involved. To them, it is very far from trivial. Artistically as well, I imagine, if you are a pop singer, songwriter by trade. I am not one of these Eurovision fans who thinks it should be taken seriously. No, I think you should take Eurovision for whatever you want Eurovision to be for you. And there are a lot of Eurovision fans out there who do take it really, really seriously. And they get very snobby if anybody ever dares to criticise the competition. I think it's a brilliant mixture of complete commitment to silliness. It rightly is derided in some areas of society. But, you know, you can't deny that it is a hugely historic event. It's been going on since 1956. It is the world's biggest television show. So no programme is is viewed more than Eurovision other than the Super Bowl. So it has got that prestige behind it. However, I mentioned it before, some of the songs are not very good. You know, some of the acts are bizarre and crazy. So it's impossible to sit here and go, no, you have to take it very seriously because some of what you see is very hard to take seriously in the first place. Now in its second year, Showstoppers are back with their alternative Eurovision Song Contest the week before the main event on Saturday the 15th of May. We're raising money for the Care Workers Trust. Yeah, it's a lot of fun and it's so nice to do something which which is celebrating silliness at a time when there's so much heaviness around. Showstoppers is an improvised musical which aims to be as good as a musical with Eurovision we knew that we couldn't improvise it because of the time lag but yeah it was decided that we should do our own tribute for charity and as with all of our stuff we do try and honour what we're parodying. Now to take this very seriously just for a moment so last year you represented Slovakia or your alter ego Marika, Marika Elan. I want to really drill down into the process of creating (laughs) Marika Elan. What was your inspiration? I feel like every year in Eurovision there is a completely insane and out there sort of act that's trying to be a bit avant-garde with their with their performance so that was my inspiration all the uh, the many countries that have come in previous years I think there was one that was on a ladder a couple of years before and there was a man on the ladder and then when he took <laughs> he took a, a thing off his head and it was a horse's head or something crazy like that so that was like the direct inspiration but the general I wanted to tick the box of insane avant-garde so the song is called identity what better song title for eurovision 
my analysis of the song. I love the kind of key features, the big intervals, the high notes representing that kind of pleading and longing. We had a key change to increase the emotional intensity, very important part of Eurovision. And obviously we had the payoff. A bit of a spoiler if you haven't seen it, but do look it up on YouTube or via the Showstoppers website, where we realise that the man we thought is facing forwards <laughs> is actually the wrong way round. I'm really pleased that you, you know, picked up on all of those <laughs> multifaceted themes. Of course, you know, culminating in that incredible visual climax. I'm sure you have been enjoying with excitement the entries for this year. There seems to me to be a line between those who, as the acts themselves or as the artistic aesthetic of their songs, are taking it seriously and those who aren't. Talk to me about those baby grows. Do you know which act I mean? I think you're talking about Iceland. Absolutely. Now, they are represented by an artist called Daddy Frere from Iceland, of course. Now, he is, and this is a perfect example that you've given there, because he is in Iceland, obviously his own country. He is a huge pop star. You know, He is one of Iceland's biggest musical artists. And this is something that UK viewers of Eurovision don't understand and they can't get their head round. Why don't we do very well? We're just so hated, <laughs> aren't we? Like, in every respect. Poor old Britain. We don't do very well because we don't send our biggest pop stars, but other countries do. And that's why they get votes from various parts of Europe. But yes, Iceland this year is amazing because, as you say, they all wear their baby grows. It's a fun green colour. They've got their faces pixelated on the front. Their song last year, that was a TikTok hit. They've got a new song for this year, which I think is going to be really popular. But there's a whole thing behind it. You know, it's all about the marketing as well. They've got their own video game that they've released to go alongside the song this year year it's just mad how much effort some countries put into it it's less of a song contest now isn't it but more of a performance is it the eurovision song contest or the eurovision image contest it's all about what you do with the song of course a bad song is not necessarily going to win the contest it has to have something about it but then it is so much of course about the staging in normal times it's so much about the tour beforehand you know some of these artists will travel to pre-parties all across Europe their tourist boards sometimes will fund their participation in the contest because they would love to win the contest and you know for those of you that might not know if you win the contest you get the right to host the following year so those countries will want to win Eurovision because they will want the tourists they will want you know, loads and loads and thousands and thousands of people from all around the world going to that one specific location. We saw that a couple of years ago with Israel. We've seen it before with countries like Cyprus, who are sending huge artists with massive songwriting teams. Cyprus have never won Eurovision. They've come very, very close. And they just want to bring the tourism and bring all those people to the island. Sweden have got a huge uh, pop music factory, basically, you know, songwriters, singers, they do pop music incredibly well. And it's all about perception, because in Sweden, their Eurovision selection programme is their biggest television programme of the year. You know, it is their Olympic Games almost, you know, that is the biggest, view, the most viewed 
television program every single year and it gets upwards of 50 60 70 percent of the population watching the show so perception does play a huge role in it as well. So I'm interested in perception with the Sweden entry. sir. so he said in interviews, I always see personality before gender. I'm a little wary of putting labels on others. There is a freedom. People should be allowed to be seen for who they are. I want to be seen for who I am. Do you think Eurovision has become about gender identity and sexual identity and freedom? I think for a lot of Eurovision's history, those two things have been kind of interlinked. If we go back to even 1998, when the contest was, and this sounds crazy to say, hosted in the United Kingdom, because we couldn't ever imagine that again, it was in Birmingham, and an artist called Dana International won for Israel in 1998. You know, Dana, a transsexual, we had never seen somebody of of that identity win the contest before and if you think about what the world was like in 1998 you know that was a huge moment we have since seen Conchita win Eurovision who is a drag act she won in 2014 so I think the fantastic charisma fantastic image tell me hand on heart was that a good song Rise yeah. Like a Phoenix I I think Rise Like a Phoenix was a was a masterpiece of music if you just listen to it you know even if you don't watch it it sounds like a Bond theme I think I think it was a it was a really really good entry and I think it definitely deserved to win in 2014 there were a lot of good songs that year I seem to remember but it's all about the song plus you know it's all about the song plus the artist's appearance, also the staging. But but no, on to, on to your, your original question that you asked there. I think absolutely Eurovision is a safe space for people to identify however they want to. And I think that's one of the reasons that makes the contest so special for the LGBTQ plus community. So I think when you have artists like Tusa coming out and saying things like that, it only helps to reinforce that Eurovision is a safe space. But I did have a really interesting conversation with somebody about this who said, well, yes, it is a really safe space for the LGBTQ plus community. But in doing that, has Eurovision lost some of what it did have when it was huge in the UK and it was a massive family show? You know, you would all sit down, you would watch the show. And has it now gone the other way? Well, it's interesting that you say about it being a family show. One of the things my personal bugbears is objectification of women in pop acts. And, you know, I'm very pleased that the Russian quite terrifying performances in a red boiler suit, but there are still quite a lot of wiggling, objectified women. How do you feel about that as a sort of flip side, almost taking away from female identity? Yeah, it's a tricky one. And I agree with you. And I think, you know, I have to obviously reinforce that I'm saying this as a, as a white cis male. So take or leave my opinion on this. But I would say that a lot of this is down to different countries in Europe and the way in which women in their society is depicted. You know, we saw, and this is a massive sweeping statement, but, you know, we see sometimes the, the Eastern European countries, perhaps, where women's rights are not maybe what they are in the West. And of course, even us here, we have a long way to go. You know, they are very willing to almost, and we spoke about it before, how much the performance is about the appearance of your act. And we saw Poland in 2014, I think it was again, who sent an act which was, you know, milkmaids licking their churning butter. It was just nuts. 
to what extent does everyone appreciate irony in Eurovision? Because I've got Polish friends who thought that was hilarious because they thought it was a deliberate send up of national stereotypes and they didn't find it offensive at all. But until I talked to them about it, watching it, I felt a little bit uncomfortable. In a similar way, I'll be honest, to this year looking at Marta Hari, the song from Azerbaijan, I feel a little bit uncomfortable. I do agree. And I think that's one of the things that's so difficult about Eurovision because, of course, it goes out across 40 plus countries and every single one of those countries has a different idea of what irony is. They have a different sense of humour. You know, British humour doesn't translate very well sometimes. And we've done that with our own artists before in a different way, probably not sexually objectifying our artists, but, you know, Scooch in 2007, okay? We all remember Scooch in there, you know, the whole aeroplane get up. They were like cabin crew. They were wandering around with their trolleys. Exactly, you're doing the moves now. But we thought it was very funny to send them to the Eurovision Song Contest here in the UK. That year, the UK public got the chance to vote for the act. But in Europe, they looked at that and they thought, what on earth is that? And they came second last in the final. It's so hard to get it right. It's interesting you mentioned Defendi. So we had Defendi on the podcast. And that, I think, does come back to a country using Eurovision as a bit of a greenwashing event, really. Azerbaijan hosted in 2012. And they used the contest as a almost a window to the world to say, look at us, we are an accepting society. There are no human rights violations in this country. If you would like to come here on holiday or whatever. But what had come before that was a huge swathe of the population of the district where they built the stadium had just been evicted because they wanted to build the stadium for the Eurovision Song Contest. I've spoken to uh, Eurovision fans who went over there to watch the contest, obviously. And while the contest was on, so the Eurovision week itself, it was perfectly acceptable for them to hold hands with their boyfriend, for example. But Sunday, so the day after, just hours after Eurovision is finished, no, you can't do that. Wow. You know, people who say Eurovision isn't political, it obviously is political. Is it political when it comes to the voting? Yes, to an extent. Does it decide the winner? No, it doesn't. But, you know, that's a completely different thing. Fair enough. I think there was a point when I was, I don't know how old, nine, where I suddenly sensed some kind of injustice, that it wasn't necessarily a meritocracy. (laughs) And there was something that really troubled me about that and quite angry uh, with Eurovision. But maybe it's time to let that go. Yeah, oh, that that is really sweet. And I can imagine probably myself feeling the same at that age, maybe. I think we need it. I think we need that competition there just to like really raise the stakes. <laughs> otherwise, I think it would just be, I don't know. I think it would be a bit drippy otherwise. When it was just the public voting, which it was until 2008, you did have a huge amount of, we will vote for our neighbours because it's a sense of national pride. But then when we've seen juries recently, the juries are actually worse than the public voters. You know, we've had countries deliberately voting down their competition so that they don't get as many points. And, you know, there's those tactics at play as well. Whereas if you combine the two, I do think that is a fair representation of the best song coming to the top and the best song from both 
winning. You know, we saw it, it was interesting in 2019, the last contest that we had, of course, Duncan Lawrence, who won for the Netherlands, he didn't win the public vote or the jury vote. So you have the best kind of middle ground winner. So you, you have a winner that pleases the most people. I find it very, very hard to predict, though. But that's part of the fun. And then also part of the fun is getting really annoyed if if what you perceive as a bad decision has been made. So are you allowed to reveal anything at all about your entry this year or is it all top secret? No, I can exclusively reveal to you. Uh, <laughs> this year I'm representing Ireland as a character called Aoife O'Sullivan. Now, all might not be what it seems. So uh, that's, a little, that's a little exciting heads up for you. So if anyone tunes in, just look out for Aoife and, you know, maybe, maybe she's not 100% who she says she is. Just leave it there. And where, where can we tune in? It's the 15th of May, is that right? You can watch it by joining the Facebook event, the Showstopper Alternative Eurovision Facebook event. So if you're on Facebook, if you're not, then you can go through the Showstopper website directly. And yeah, we're raising money for the Care Workers Trust again. And it's a lot of fun. I'm going to play you a couple of blasts of different Eurovision songs for your live reviews, if that's all right. Oh, yeah, go for it. So first of all, we'll do the UK entry, Embers. The chorus was out of the embers. You're not going to light up a room. I thought that was quite a... I thought that was quite... Did you feel like it just blended into the verse? Uh, I thought, surely a chorus has more than two <laughs> lines, doesn't it? But you're, you're the expert. Oh, I mean, I'm far from an expert, but yeah, a chorus can be, can be as short as that. I thought that was like actually really classic sort of pop song. Just like really, really simple. But simple's not necessarily bad. Because I mean, the Beatles, like, I want to hold your hand. She loves you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She loves you. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's like dead simple, but really great pop music I thought, I thought it was all right actually you look yeah. pleasantly surprised so <laughs> do, you, do you think yeah. a top 10 finish or will we be at the bottom as every year in the last few I think yeah <laughs> yeah surely we can't break our losing streak of always being at the bottom really interested to see how they staged the United Kingdom's entry this year because the UK have put a lot of effort in this year the music video was was really impressive we've chatted to a number of the the sort of team behind the song on our podcast and they say that this year is all about changing perceptions it's part of a a bigger move to get the UK to not see Eurovision as a joke to take it seriously to get us back in the top 10 will it happen this year I don't think so will we come last I don't think so we're gonna do better than that this year I'm afraid my analysis for the UK one is don't bore us where's the chorus I have heard people say that before. They do say, where's the hook? Which is problematic when you do need to be memorable in three minutes. But that said, I, 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 think, it's, I think it's memorable. I think it's memorable enough without it. Would it help with a chorus? Yes, probably. <laughs> I'm looking forward to seeing some people in an arena 
I mean, that's exciting. We we found out uh, just the other day that the Dutch government have agreed that we are going to have three and a half thousand fans at all of the shows in Rotterdam, which is nuts. But Eurovision is nothing without the fans. I'm also looking forward to the Interval Act this year, which is seeing a lot of past winners performing on rooftops in Rotterdam, which is going to be exciting. That's going to be really nice. Nice element of jeopardy there, depending on how old they are. Let's hope that all goes okay. <laughs> how, yeah, how old they are. And also, unfortunately, I can only assume the whole thing will be pre-recorded. But I do like to think that, you know, it would be a monsoon at, 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 on the evening of Eurovision and they have to go out there regardless. And there's the fear that one of them might get electrocuted because it's so wet, etc. But yeah, the interval is going to be good. It's just going to be great to have Eurovision back. You know, we've been two years without a contest. The last contest was in Israel in 2019. It was cancelled last year. It's just going to be nice to be able to sit down for three nights, of course, because it's not just about the Saturday night for us Eurovision fans. You've got first semi-final on the Tuesday, second semi-final on the Thursday, grand final on Saturday the 22nd of May. I'm just excited to have it back. That was great. Talk to me about Michael Ball's One Step Out of Time. Surely those were the days. Those were the days, yeah. Those, <laughs> those were the That's a classic pop song right there. Very nice. I was, I was bopping along. It had good drive to it. Slightly more inventive lyrics than the one about the embers and the fire and all that. Even Ball didn't win. This is my worry about this year. Well, we're never going to. I don't... I don't see how it could ever happen. Right. Well, I'm going to play you one last one, if it's okay. I'm going to play you the the favourite from this year. So you can, yep. you know, really see if, if Destiny from Malta has, mm. has got it going on. Cool. So although she's not a traditional kind of model type physique, she is very beautiful and you know feminine but for me it does some of the lines do slightly border on wiggliness but you know maybe that's inevitable (laughs) so it seems to be ladies it's okay to Mm. flaunt what you've got is this is this an empowered message? Or <laughs> I, feel, a... I feel like it's a leading question. What, what is the line between empowerment and objectification? This is what I don't understand. It's, it seems like if it's if it's genuinely on your own terms, then it's empowerment. I thought that was a great song, actually. Like that's and some like great vocals and way more interesting than a lot of the sort of bland pop. It didn't feel as derivative as as some of the other some of the other Eurovision tracks. I think though that singer would feel like it was, she was making her own choices, wouldn't she? So she, from her point of view, she's empowered. If she wants to flaunt stuff, she can. And also who's to say that she's flaunting it for men? You know, she's doing it potentially for herself or for other women, you know. I mean, how do you feel about like WAP? How do you feel about that song? Did you ever watch the video? Cardi B. Oh, I see. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, maybe, yeah, maybe, maybe don't Google it. The thing is, I heard a lot of men getting really stressed about it. Why shouldn't they? Like, why shouldn't they kind of do what they want, market themselves in a way that they choose to market themselves and celebrate female sexual pleasure? I don't think that's going to be entered for Eurovision, is it? <laughs> No, we're not quite there yet. <laughs> the 
bigger and sillier and more camp and more crazy and sexy and weird it gets, the better, I think. Bring it on. Well, thank you, Efo Sullivan slash Susan Harrison. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much. Great to talk Eurovision. I normally organise the Eurovision sweepstake. I've got the bunting that is probably only about five years old. It's bunting, which is hilarious because some of the flags are upside down, which makes them look like other flags. I think the Dutch flag is accidentally upside down, so it turns into Luxembourg or something like that. I don't do the scoring, and but it's going to sound like a ridiculous reason why I don't do the scoring, because I want to pay more attention to the song. Rob Lilly, what better way to celebrate Eurovision? Thank you so much for talking to me. Thank you very much for having me on the podcast. Is Eurovision a pompous and outdated marketing shop window for tourism or a vital cultural event? As a positive cynic, I'm very happy to pick apart this curious cultural creation, but it's difficult not to be seduced by the joy of it all. If Eurovision proves anything, it might be the difference in humour and social attitudes from country to country. But what are the things that unite us all? Sense of humour? Possibly not. Event telly? Quite possibly. If you'd like to find out more, you can follow us on Twitter at Cynic Audio or send us an email, positivecynicaudio at gmail.com. Mm-hmm.